Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. It's 4 p.m. Stand up. It's count time. Time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. Welcome to another edition of Pound Time Podcast. I am Brother L. Diazobra, formerly named Lyman White. Thank you for joining us today. Good evening. We're back once again here with uh, our dear brother, uh, scholar, author, historian. We have to do it. It was so good. The first time we had to come back and do a part two. It's just so much information, so much knowledge. I, I don't know. We, we still ain't going to be able to get it all this time, but we're going to do the best we can. We have here Dr. Abraham, Abraham Sick. But first of all, I met Brother Abraham years ago. I was on the board of the River Road African American Museum. We was on Tescuco Tes Plantation at the time. And at that time, our president was Madam Chair right now of LSU, Dr. Joyce Marie Jackson, who was here with us today. Welcome again, Doc. Hello, thank you. And uh, we were have we will have her participating too in this interview with this not interview with this conversation and discussion. But we have Brother Ibrahim Sect here who wrote his book on Buki. Fegumbu. Fegumbu. Gumbu. Fegumbu. Gumbu. We got G O M Gumbu around here, so that's how we're gonna say Gumbu, which is a book about the history of the slave community of habitation Haydea at Whitney Plantation. So we are here. And first of all, we want to talk about the big thing that has been in this country for the last going on two years now, and it's kind of weighing everybody down. But I want to know how how are they dealing with this in your country with the COVID nineteen? How is that affecting the people there? The income, people working, can people work? People getting out? People able to sell their products? What's going on in Senegal with COVID nineteen right now? COVID nineteen uh, really started hitting us uh, in February. 2020, and the first case was a Frenchman from France. There was a lot of scare, of course, and uh, the government took a lot of uh, uh, decisions, hard ones like confinement. It was not really a real confinement because still people could go out and work at the daytime, wear masks, and uh, we have a curfew starting at eight o'clock, and it lasted about three months, and then they lifted the. The curfew, but in the during the first wave, we did really well. Very low rate of infection. Very few people died of it. But for the the the, the next wave with the Delta variant of the virus, it was worse, but still under control. Uh, at one time, so far, according to official records, we have. Uh, 1,826 who died from it since it began. In the, in, the, in the country of Senegal? Yeah, in the country, yeah. 1,826 out of a population it, 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 of uh, 16 million people. 16 million? Yeah. And uh, now maybe more than a million and a half close to 2 million people are vaccinated and more vaccines are pouring in. So I think compared to many countries like Morocco, we are doing fairly well, although in some countries really bad, like South Africa. Uh, some authorities from uh, the World Health Organization said it will be a, a tragedy for Africa, but so far, I think we are doing relatively well. 
then people use whatever they can. You know, we have good doctors, although the hospitals are very poorly implemented, poorly equipped. But uh, I think you are doing uh, relatively fine. Okay, I'm glad to hear that. But it's kind of interesting how the COVID, we started out with the coronavirus, and all of a sudden they started calling it COVID-19, people got a little nervous. Mm. As long as it was coronavirus, it was not that big of a deal to people, but when it became the COVID, people got a little nervous and a little scared. But for one disease or virus to impact and the whole world shuts down at the same time. You know, you become a little leery that who can control this that shut the whole world out simultaneously. Mm. It's almost like that's some kind of conspiracy or, you know, the world never worked together like that before. To be that organized to yeah. shut it down and to say that uh, all leaders all over the world come together at the same time mm-hmm. and come with the exact same decision when mm-hmm. right here in the United States they can't, in Congress, they can't even come up with an agreement about signing a bill to feed the people right here. But all of a sudden the whole world leadership came together. So you kind of start thinking about that. Do is this some kind of organized process? Because, you know, when, when they do the G7 summit, mm-hmm. very few of us know what goes on at the G7 summit. Mm-hmm. And uh, But any time I hear, I hear terms like G and 7, I'll become my, my ears and my mind open up mm-hmm. because I'm not, a, I'm not a Mason or Masonic, but I know... And those those people, the, are you familiar with the Masons or the Masonic people? Yeah, I know. But they use the term G and seven. Mm-hmm. That is their logo, the G mm-hmm. and the seven. So that is interesting that, you know, these people can meet every year and nobody really knows what goes on at the G7 summit but those who are at the meeting. So, I mean, did they organize or, I guess, you know, we, we don't want to start no conspiracy theory, but... To see the whole world come together and decide to shut down simultaneously, and Africa too, yeah, nobody, yeah. nobody has been concerned about Africa. Mm-hmm. So, what's your thought is on that? I thought it is a real disease that is affecting people. People getting sick and people dying. It isn't fake news. Where it came from, how it came to be, I don't know. But anyway, all I know is that it's crippling the world economy. And I think if you have that kind of uh, global reaction and solidarity, I think it is because uh, big money is uh, under under threat, you know. Closing down a whole country or whatever, that's not good for the economy. And I think that's a great motivation for those people up there to do something about it. And of course, with the help of the, the media, now it's easy to communicate, you know. Okay, you know, now an interesting thing to me, too, is that, <clears throat> to me, Africa, one of the true richest country, in the, the richest continent in the world. Mm-hmm. But they always show the poor people starving to death in Africa, have no resources. 
Yeah. Why, how, how is that possible? That's because of uh, exploitation that uh, was going, that's been going on for so long. And uh, all the wealth goes out of our hands. We don't have control of our resources, our natural resources, just being looted by foreign companies. All the world diamonds, all the, mostly mm. all the world gold. Yeah, everything is going Every away. Every precious metal is mm. right there in Africa. All the animals you could imagine. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, where everything started. It is a very big continent, all kind of environments. That's why you have so, such a variety of minerals. But we don't have control on that. Have to control them. Mm -hmm. So the Europeans, when they came there, what year was that? The Europeans came in uh, pouring in in the 15th century, mid 15th century, with the Portuguese. So trading along the coast of Africa, and started kidnapping people. And later they understood that's a very dangerous business for them. Where they find other ways to get uh, human resources develop their land or whatever. So, 400 years of slavery, 100 years of colonization, that's when after slavery ended, they conquered Africa and Africans became slaves on their own land. That's 500 years. And now we are talking of new, neo-colonialism, new colonialism. Just like in the United States, we are talking about new Jim Crow. So that's a long-going exploitation, and uh, that's the way it is. And we are fighting, we are struggling to be really independent and to have control on our resources. But we have a problem with our political elites. Uh, Being bought out? Yeah, bought out, and uh, I understand that uh, governance in uh, Africa is a very tough thing, you know. It is not easy. We are struggling to have real democracy, but I think uh, many powerful countries out there don't want us to get real democracy where the people have the control Which of is, the resources. So that's reality. Absolutely. So leadership in Africa just puppet on the strings? Basically, that, that's the way it is, and uh, like I told you, if you even come with a lot of uh, willing to change things... You won't live long. You end, and you know you won't live long, and uh, you have to do what they call real politic accommodation to the system. So that's the, the, the key word is system, whatever system, whatever you know, level of democracy we have there. Whenever the system wants to hurt you, the system is going to hurt you. The, the system will get you anyway. So the only, the only way to maybe move forward, and that's why many colonial powers don't want that to happen, is African political unity. Well, that's you have that uh, unity among Africans, and everybody say no at the same time something will happen, but it is not easy. And it is not easy to be a Pan-Africanist in Africa. But you know, but also I got another question. You know, everybody, almost all of the men that was, when I was in synagogue, name was Falu Amamadu. 
<laughs> why, <laughs> why so many men have those, those two names, Falu and Mamadou? Mamadou is Muhammad, the prophet of Islam. Oh, okay. That's why so many people have that name, Mamadou. One of my names is Mamadou. How many names do you have? Many. <laughs> you know, they give you names and nicknames. Yes, okay. Because mm. I mean, so many people name was And that's a way also of protecting you. On the mystical level, it is good to have many names. Hmm. No, yeah. explain that. Hmm? You said that's a good way of protecting yourself. What do you mean by that? Have many names. Oh, it is uh, something we just believe that uh, you always have somewhere, somehow, uh, weaknesses in, uh, in your system, and we may have a, a weak name. And if you carry many, it will be hard for the evil doers to find. Well, I heard that, the, the I heard that before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a that's mm -hmm. an African uh, like the Sunjata, the founder of the Empire of Mali. They called him Lom or No Multiple Country Less Fertilization or The man who has so many names that evil doers cannot do anything to harm him. My first trip to Africa uh, was Senegal. I was uh, one one of the. They brought us to a, I guess the, the traditional hospitals that was run mainly by the Catholic Church. One of the traditional hospitals that was Catholic priests there, I guess. Mm. And they 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 allow us to to watch the the doctors or the healers perform. And it was these guys did not have all this sophisticated equipment. They just they just used this little wand type kind of thing in their in their hand and they, they said that they can tell where the body where some if someone is sick or whatever what's going on in the body because the body give off energy and they can feel the energy in the, in their hand and that was in Dakar Dakar yeah or maybe or just a little outside of Dakar and it was pretty interesting but also that's the time I learned that the reason why People say when you sneeze, people say bless you, mm -hmm. because the people they believe back then, when someone sneezes, you release evil spirits. <laughs> so they were, mm -hmm. and also another thing happened that when you sneeze, your heart stopped beating. Mm -hmm. So they say bless you because you can die. People would die from sneezing, or mm -hmm. they say bless you because to uh, because the evil spirits that are being released, they put, put bestow blessings upon you. So African have so so rich in all type of traditions and and saying like that. You, can you think of any of some more uh, sayings that y'all might have like that? That's uh, I mean, uh, folk beliefs and uh, it is part of a whole world view, you know. But outsider who don't understand it call it superstition. All of that is part of uh, a system of beliefs and but like someone said, one man's religion is another man's superstition. Another man's so, what? One man's religion is another man's superstition. Superstition. Okay. Mm -hmm. Just like I found in folklore books in Louisiana written in the nineteen now in the in the twentieth century. 
from the so-called slave narratives they collected what they call I mean interviewed form, uh, former enslaved people about their beliefs and things like that of course it is very biased now Egypt was a little bit different it was just more Arabic culture you know kind of those other people are invaders they were invaders they so, came recently and conquered the country. So, so I'm asking this question here. When you were in school, were y'all taught that Egypt was not part of Africa too? Yes. Until uh, we discovered Shaan Dijab. So, Sheikh Anthony, the one who taught y'all that Egypt was in Africa? Yes. And... Uh, in the early years, like until the 60s, Job had written about uh, Egypt at that time, but it was not accessible to all of us. I know that in our textbooks, Egypt was considered as a great civilization and was considered as a geographical accident. <laughs> That's him. It was built by people who were not African, and if Egypt is in Africa, it is an accident. It is there, but it shouldn't be there. <laughs> and they created the whole concept of the Near East. To include the Middle East, yes. No, the Near East. The Near East. Yeah, the Middle East, yeah, the Near hold East. On, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Near East, So yeah. in this country, they told us the Middle East. And yeah. up there, they told y'all what? The we, Near East. We have the Far East, you have the Middle East, we have also the Near East. La Proche Orient, the Near East. And Egypt became part of the Near East, not part of Africa. So the, the, so the, the people in control, they just took Egypt, tore out of Africa. Yeah. They, they, say they, they, had they wish they could uh, carve it away from Africa, but they, they, they cannot do that. <laughs> But they just, you know, manipulated the concepts and carried the concept of the Near East, because of which became, I mean, uh, Egypt became a part. Because of the it, Near East. Because Israel is was on what on what continent? Israel, they put it in uh, the Near East. But it's on the continent of Africa. Mm. Nobody talks about Israel being on the continent of Africa. Right. In fact, when you if you define Africa uh, from blackness, Africa was much wider than what we call today the continent of Africa. Black people lived everywhere. Yeah, Asia, they go yeah. in the Asiatic people. That was yeah. That. So that's the way it is. And uh, you were taught that Egypt was a geographical accident. Geographic accent. Mm. Never heard first time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm. And uh, also in the through the film we see we don't see black people ruling Egypt. It was white people. But that's was I told you uh, I mentioned to you before that my first trip to Egypt was in 1990. I went by uh, Egypt went with an Egyptologist named Dr. Ben Yosef Yahakana, who Britain would not allow him to do any training or teaching mm -hmm. when we went visit different sites. He, he had to hire a tour guide that went, that was approved by Britain 
to give the tours. But when we got to the hotels at each day, Dr. Ben gave us his version of what we seen. Because when I went to Egypt... No, maybe not the British, because uh, Egypt is an independent, independent country since the 1950s, I think. Maybe the two guys over there too, they were trained to tell another story about uh, who really built oh, yeah. they, they, Egypt. They, yeah. yeah, but, but what, what fascinated me, I didn't go there expecting what I saw, what I seen. It caught me off guard, mm -hmm. right? I knew a little information. In 1990, I was not ready for this at all. So when I went to Egypt, we went inside the different temples, tombs, and everybody on the wall looked like you, mm -hmm. me, Dr. Jackson. And that you know, it shocked you in a way because that, that caught me off guard. I did not know even the gods were people, you know, didn't look like no European. And it was just, it messed me up to the point when I came back home it took me a while to recover from that because I felt deceived, like that people. I felt hook wing bamboozer, mm. like this system been lying to us from day one. So my thing was at time at that time, like you lied to me about this. What else did you lie to me about? So that, it took me a whole. It took me many years to recover from that. So you telling me that you had the exact same experience living in Africa? Absolutely. Yeah. They wouldn't let us know the, the, the truth. So you was blinded yeah, in your until, own country? Until the 1970s, I mean, those textbooks, they were written by outsiders, by foreigners, the, the former colonizer, and uh, just uh, designed to domesticate our minds. So but what did the elders in the village teach y'all? Because African people, they, they was great storytellers and they passed on the history of your mm -hmm. country and your, your tribe. And so what, they couldn't, they couldn't talk about it? Uh, it depends on uh, the, the topic. But like Egypt, that's a, something, a civilization that was there a long time ago. And I don't think uh, you can ask a griot to tell you something about uh, those days, the real history. And even before the Europeans uh, distorted the history of Egypt, the people from the East did something too. Like, uh, the history of the pharaoh with Moses and all of that. I think there's a big problem over there. So, it is just a way of uh, bringing us to hate the pharaoh because of uh, his relationship with Moses. But, but uh, they don't really emphasize that Moses was African too. He was born in Africa. He grew up in Africa. And whatever he learned about religion and things like that, he did learn it in the temples of Egypt. He was born right there. Mm. Well, all the so-called scholars, even so-called Alexander the Great, when they went in there and they pilfered 
and they said he burned the library in Alexander. Only after they took out all the books mm-hmm. <laughs> and copied them and rewrote them, and mm-hmm. you know, I guess they did the biggest pr- job of plagiarism than anybody in the world. But they taking credit for it now because they are the scholars and the, you know, the the, the, the what you call that the great philosophers. Mm-hmm. But we was called sage at that time, mm-hmm. not philosophers. So the philosophers more of a yeah, it was until uh, really personally when I studied under Job that uh, we really we discovered the truth about uh, the ancient Greeks, how they traveled to Africa and learn about sciences, mm-hmm. mathematicians, and even medicine. But when they went back home to Egypt, they really did not say that they did learn all of this in the temples of Egypt. They presented just like their own discoveries. That's a big problem. So, that's, that's the problem. So, like the brother Imhotep, yeah. who was the father uh, of medicine. The father of medicine, who... But in Europe, I think the, the, the person they call the father of medicine is from uh, Greece, yes. Greek. We call him Hippocrate in French. Yeah, call Hippocrates? Yeah, they call him, they make the oath, the Hippocrates. The oath of, yes. of Hippocrates. And that was from Imhotep. Yes. We know that. Oh, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the problem is that. Uh, we don't need anymore to go through distortion of falsification of the real history. We not just need to tell the truth to our children, whatever the shade of the color. But if we don't know the truth, how can you share it? Hmm? If we don't know the truth, like the, the, the truth is there, and but know that the truth is there. I mean, as far as the scholars are concerned. But this, but now we. We need to have uh, people who are honest enough, who are honest, you know. Yeah, and, you, uh, you, you serious? I'm. Uh, you optim- optimistic. Maybe I'm, I'm dreaming too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, so you you think someone who you, you think that uh, <clears throat> the slave master decided where that's enough. We but but I know that there are some people fighting in, inside the system too. But you couldn't put all white people in the same bag. Yeah, also honest white people fighting for the truth. But of course themselves also they are muted. I'm talking about those people. You, may, you need to have people who speak out on both sides. That's what I, what I mean. But the system will always be the system. People will control it, and they will do whatever they can but he, but let's, to let's control the man. And now, you know, all these technologies that have been invented, now we can do anything or much to really be sure your children be educated the right way. They steal your own children in your own house. Like little John here. Who is little John? 
Shanta, my son, Shanta. This generation, if you are not tough and really be there and let them understand, your mind is being lost. They're going to be lost because all the social media, you know, you know, they shape your mind and they steal your own child in your own home with all these video games or whatever. They don't listen to you. They don't, they don't have ears anymore. So their minds were, are controlled through all these gaming devices or whatever. And now the news are shaped by, by uh, social media and involve a lot of fake news. And that's why you have so many people who are anti-vaccine. That's also something new. I think before when they have an epidemic, people go and get vaccinated. But now there's a lot of uh, fake news going on. And many people refuse to be vaccinated because they think that those vaccines are just like a plot or whatever. Let me, let, me, let me tell you what, uh, what some young folks told me about a month ago, not quite a month ago. <clears throat> uh, they not interested in being vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And I want to know why. You know, so they started sharing with me. They say, well, they came from the biblical perspective, caught me off guard. Mm -hmm. I said, well, the Bible says in the, in the last day, you're gonna, they're going to give you the mark of the beast. In those days that if you refuse the mark of the beast, you won't be able to operate in commerce. You won't be able to participate in society. You won't be able to do this and be able to do that. And I'm listening to them speak. And now they're saying where all our lives they told us to believe the Bible. So now somebody is lying. <laughs> Either the Bible is not true or the government is lying. Or the government is, or the government is, 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 is telling the truth or the government is lying or the government is, not, is, is lying and the Bible is true. So I'm in a bad, the, the young people say they're in a bad place. Because mm -hmm. all, all their life you've been taught to believe something mm -hmm. and now what they believe, they tell them don't believe it anymore because the government is telling you what is what's best for you and what's right. But it's at the same time, I'm, you, the Bible says these days, this day was coming. So now what, what should I believe? So the young people, that was something to think about when they shared that with me. And, I'm, and I, I, was, it was, I was interested to learn that they was thinking on that level, at least this group of, this group of young people here. So what's your thoughts on that? Oh, all I want to say about these books can be the Bible, the Quran, or whatever sacred book. It is always a matter of interpretation. You know, I know people, I love to hear them when they talk about, when they talk about the Bible, the Quran, and it always makes sense, whatever they say. They are not into the kind of interpretation where someone would come out there and tell you, no, you cannot get a vaccine. The Bible doesn't say that. So it is a level of interpretation and not, I think, everybody uh, can reach that level of interpretation. The 
in Senegal we call them marabou. Those are Muslim scholars, you know, learned people. And it was always a pleasure to hear one of them. He died in 2017. His name was Sheikh Tijan Al Maktoum. And it was always a pleasure to hear him talk about Islam, to hear him talk about the Bible, about Jesus, about Moses. But unfortunately, most of our people are, the people in the world at the ground level, and uh, it is easy to misinterpret the Bible or whatever, or the Quran, the wrong way. And that's how the Bible, the Bible, the Quran, all of those were interpreted to become tools for imperialism, tools for brainwashing, tools for exploitation too. Like in my country, <clears throat> we have people over there who are called so-called marabou. So-called what? Marabou is uh, like a scholar, a Muslim scholar. Some of them are, you know, involved in healing. Recently, I had an example like that. That's a guy who I'm, I'm helping a lot uh, in Africa. When I helped him build his house, he was sick this year. When I went to my hometown, I went to visit him. He was there sick, and I said, what are you doing here? You have a hospital here. We have two hospitals in town. He said, no, he, he's been taken care by a marabou who gave him like uh, holy water and things like that. And I told him, you know what? That guy, when he gets sick, he goes to see the doctor. <laughs> and you get sick and you go to see him. That doesn't make sense. Go, get up and go to, to the hospital. He said, okay, I don't have money. And I gave him the money to go over there. But that's the way the things are. So there's, a lot, there's a lot of miseducation. On both sides. On both sides, yeah. That's universal. So, so how do you hmm? get to the truth? Education. You know. Sometimes even when discussing with uh, scholars, I realize that they don't understand really what uh, religion is. They don't even have a clue. They have an experience with religion, and that determines what, uh, what they think. But I... I think that normally religion should not be a problem. Religion is a solution. I think it's from Latin religiere to connect people. You have to have that connectivity, which not only connection between the living, but also connection with the dead. <laughs> In African conception, when someone dies, he get to the status of ancestor. And that connect connection go all the way to the deities all the way to the supreme god that's that's been connected no no, no. like the old folks yeah. tell us mm -hmm. you got to explain that one again mm -hmm. you got to explain that one again not explain you got to explain yeah. that one again yeah uh, we africans have a very pragmatic approach to religion religion is meant to solve our problems. We know there is one God up there, but uh, we consider also that, uh, you know, when you get, when you come on earth, 
you are connected to the living. And this earth should not be hell. Have good relation with the living. You start with your family, your lineage and all of that. And also the living have to be connected with the dead. When someone dies, become an, he becomes an, an ancestor, you know. He becomes an ancestor and you can also call upon him to solve your problems. That ancestor is also connected to the deities, all the way to the Supreme God. So religion in our conception is very pragmatic. You pray to get solutions to your, to, to your problem. You need rain for your field, you need, you need uh, you know, health. Also rituals of healing are, are really, uh, really important. And uh, there's one thing about like a Haitian voodoo, they have a, a, a hymn called uh, the Jod Prayer. Oh, the what? Jor prayer. Jor prayer. Yeah, where they say, like when they say Haitian, they 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 worship like the devil, or whatever, or African worship. Uh, how do you call it, fetish or whatever? In that song, they say, "No, rai voodoo, no reme wanga, no rai voodoo, no reme wanga." We don't like the voodoo, but we like his magic, you know. It is not just because I pray to this particular deity that he's my God. No, I'm just uh, soliciting him to, 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 to have a result. I have a problem right now. I want it to be solved, you know. It is not because I'm worshipping the snake or whatever. I'm trying to find a solution. You see, that's what we call pragmatism in terms of uh, religion. So, it's a very complicated That's why you simplify it for us, right? It's a very complicated... Uh, it took me many, many years to write the few pages I have about religion. Oh, you, oh, you, you, you wrote about religion in your upcoming book? Mm-hmm. What's no, that, that, that's uh, that the starting, the starting, uh, let's say, uh, the starting pages of uh, the chapter I have on voodoo, voodoo in Louisiana. That is already out, or is a book that's coming out? No, that's a book that's coming out. Okay, what's, what's, what's the title of that book? The West African Roots of Louisiana Afro Creole Culture. Afro Creole. Creole culture. Creole yeah. culture. That's a long title. It's mm -hmm. <laughs> a long title. It may be longer. In fact, that's a subtitle. The big title, like here, it is Masters of the Savannah. Master of? Masters of the Savannah. Where the Savannah? Savannah is the bush grassland, you know, tall grassland that hide big animals with trees. That's Savannah. It's kind of an environment between the rainforest and the Sahel when you get closer to the desert. It has still uh, big trees and all of that, but uh, you have also a lot of grassland, tall grass hiding, you like the big game, like the elephants, the lions, and 
Yeah, that's, what what that's what I want to talk about. That's, that's the savannah. That's, that's the land, <laughs> the land of the hunters. Yeah, right. The land of the great, great warriors, but also the empire of Buki. Buki is called among the Bamana secret society. He is called the master of the savannah. So, so, so we still dealing with Buki. It is still Buki. Buki, yeah. Buki <laughs> means how he does, mm-hmm. or he goat. <laughs> that's 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 here in Louisiana. Uh, when I say Buki, among the in the secret society of the Como, the Mask Society, which I link to the Mardi Gras Indians in New Orleans, Buki is called Congo Tigi. Congo Tigi. Congo, Tigi, Congo is the savannah, the, the, the bush, the wilderness. And he's, the, the lion is not the king. Hold on. Of the savannah or the, you know. The hyena? It is the, it is the hyena. <laughs> I, keep, I keep noticing that yeah. hyena come take everybody food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, hyena, the hyena we have in folk tales is different from the hyena we have in the secret societies. What, and what you, what, hold on, what you mean, when I hear secret societies? That means, uh, you know, when, when you grow up in Africa, traditional Africa, you go through different rites of passage. You have society of the uncircumcised children. But then they become teenagers and they go through initiation to get into the home or the adobe of the adults, in the world of the adults. So the adults pull them into that section of their life, the midlife. You become an adult, you become responsible, you get married, but it has to go through a lot of drilling. We start with circumcision, they cut you somewhere. And if it goes with a lot of drilling, a lot of education, they take you into the sacred forest under the surveillance of the mask. So hold on, hold on, mm. hold on. So the secret society thing that you hear in this country, most times is it's, it's organizations, right, in this country. So there's a, a, a concept that every child in Africa already go through, secret societies? I'm talking about secret societies. I'm not talking about gangs or something like that, no. No, no, I'm talking about no gangs. Yeah, it is something that is well organized, and only the people who are initiated know what is inside. All of them have access to the sacred forest. All of them, only them have access to the meetings, of uh, that uh, Como society. You say Como? Como, yeah. How you spell Como that? or Coma. K-O-M-O. Oh, Como. 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 Como is also a name that I can't remember, that I used to use, Como. I can't remember the term. It goes Nothing to do with a uh, uh, Mardi Gras, white Mardi Gras crew called Como. No, no, I ain't talking no, no, about no. the crowd. But anyway, go on. I don't want to stop the So, problem. you are over there under the protection of the mask. And the mask is, uh, in some society, they call it the mystery. Like in Senegal, we have a mask society called Kumpo. It, it means mystery. And you know, that's uh, really the strength of the society is based on mystery. Not, not everybody is allowed to know what is going on in there. And if you get in there, you are not supposed to dead. To be in there, you're dead. <laughs> or if you are part of the society and you go outside and you reveal, you know, you tell people, outsiders, what 
What is going in here? They make the night eat you. Make the lions eat you. Night. The night. N-I-G-H-T? Night, yeah. Okay, explain that. When they say someone was eaten by the night. <laughs> Never heard that one. That means the mask came to get him in the middle of the night and you just disappear. The mask. The mask come and get you. When M -A -S -K I M-A-S-K mask? M-A-S-K. It is a man with a, you know, with a mask accompanied by warriors, you know, who are the responsible of, of the mask. They come and get you, just like the, 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 the police. Just like the police? Better than that. Special forces. Now, you, you, I'd like for you to share with us, before we get to start some other dialogue, about the coming up in Africa through the secret society. Uh, you know, <clears throat> indeed, I'm, I'm talking about a traditional setting. Not all Africans go through that. And uh, now very few people go through this kind of initiation. And I would call them initiation societies. Initiation, okay. So, and of course... So, so, it, yeah, so you're, saying, you're saying they're, they're getting away from that initiation? Yeah, because of Islam. Because of uh, Islam and uh, uh, now many things are dying. It is also an environmental problem. Like you had large forested areas that were secluded. Only the initiated people can get into, into the Le Bois Sacre, the sacred forest. That's for the initiation society and that initiation society has a mask and the mask of the symbol of authority it is a human being who's in who's in there usually one of the most um, uh, some of the guy who has who is in the highest degree who is in there masking he has to be very strong very knowledgeable and all of that and uh, <clears throat> it, the mask is something that is really scary when the monks arrive in the village... You, like said, you said the mask, M-A-S-K. M-A-S-K. It is someone with an... Uh, how can I call it? An outfit. Maybe with uh, like leaves and all kind of uh, material from the, from the nature. He carries two machetes. In the case of uh, the initiation society called Kankurang. And there's a, a hierarchy there, just like among the Mardi Gras Indians, there's a hierarchy uh, around him. And uh, those are the people who take care of the initiates. They circumcise you, you go through circumcision, and then they, they, you go through drilling, this will just like in the military. And uh, it is so hard that when you get out of the forest, the sacred forest, you are really an accomplished warrior and a man. Just like, uh, let's say, a GI when you get out of drilling. You know how to protect yourself, you know how to kill, you know how to protect, you know about the medicinal plants, you know. So you are studying the plants? Oh yeah, everything, you know, those that can heal, those that can kill or whatever. And make sure you don't tell them I don't like uh, gumbo. <laughs> if you tell them you don't like, you don't eat gumbo, they will feed you gumbo every day. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a part of the, drill, of, of, the, of the drilling, you know. 
So, once you get out of that initiation... Well, how long do, how long y'all stay in the forest? I uh, don't quite remember, but I think uh, it's about a month or so that uh, they stay in the forest. And usually so, they, they do it in the middle of the rainy season. Once they finish with the heavy cultivation business, you know, like putting the seed in the ground and then uh, plowing the land. And then when all the weeds are dominated by the plants, the only thing you need to do is to go have some rest and let the plants grow. Let it produce. Yeah, let it produce. And that, that's a period where between that period and the harvest, that's where about a month you have time to do that kind of... Uh, well, let's go back to that 30, 33 and a third, baby. Huh? Mm. <laughs> so that's when they organize those uh, kind of initiations. So how Why old? How old? It's going on right now in Senegal. Uh, how old? How old were you when you went through that process? When you, when you, when you, it's for teenagers. Like, uh, it can start as early as 13, 14. It depends on your maturity? Yeah. And not also your age, just, just, just your age, you know. So. I've seen some guys that didn't go through it mm -hmm. early age. Mm -hmm. They become an adult and then they come back. Yes, yeah, sometimes, you know, uh, so, so some people are. Go but that's a special ceremony. Mm. Circumcision is every year. Mm. When you get to the age of getting circumcised, they circumcise you, they take you into the uh, sacred wood or whatever. Mm. But there is a big ceremony that may happen maybe every 30 years. Mm. That's a and even more serious things. You, you may miss it because you were too young to be in there. Yeah. But later in your age, you can be my age and get initiated and you get yeah. there with your grandsons or your, your, your sons or whatever. So it's... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, but you, you also said it's not a one-time thing. It's initiation is a constant development as you growing up as a child. The, the forest is just one of the Major yeah, uh, you have the, the first section, the first uh, society you grow in, it is designed, designed for children. They call it Ndomo among the Bamana. What do you call it? Ndomo. Ndomo? Ndomo, yeah. Okay. So they have their own rituals, you know, not really uh, that uh, really serious, but also they get some training, some education, and uh, it involves, uh, it can involve like storytelling and things like that. And then you get to the middle age, that's uh, when you, from being a, a teenager, you get into what they call the, the home of the adults. That's where these things happen. And then when you get older, you get out of that middle age and you go into the third age. Third age? Yeah, that's the, 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 the society of the elders. They call it uh, uh, Kore, the Kore Society. Kore, Kore Society. Just like uh, children, adult, elders. And everybody, you know, plays a role in, in the society. Mm. And so, so most of your education, you get it through, you know, going through those rites of passage, you know. 
that's the way it was, but the most interesting part of your education, that's the education you get into to, to get into adulthood, the home of the adults. So you so so you don't it's not somewhere you just end up at. They prepare you for for your adulthood. Mm -hmm. Your manhood or womanhood. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, they have rituals for women too. And even some, uh, it is rare, but uh, some, uh, in some part of West Africa, the, the, the women have their own mask too. So now, mm -hmm. in this country, a mask is used for basically entertainment. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I know, but, but uh, in Africa, the, the mask is also participate into entertainment. But you have, let's say, everyday life, like when someone is born, festivities, the mask is there dancing. When uh, they have uh, funerals, the mask is there second lining. The mask second lining in synagogue? Yeah, people follow the mask, you know, second liner, they follow the, the mask. They call it second lining in synagogue? No, mm -hmm. no, it is just the, the, same, the same kind of principle. You have followers, you have the people who surround the mask, just like here. Flag boy, spy boy, you know, a wild man. Hmm? They have to say, they call it the same thing? No, it is a different language, but like uh, the, the wild man, I see him in New Orleans with his horns. We have also uh, among the Kankora and the Kumpo in Senegal, you can see someone with horns who play the same role as the wild man among the Madugra Indians. He, the wild man, I think, is the one who protects, who, who made an order. Hmm? Order in Africa, he's uh, the one who maintain order and who protect the mask. In fact, the mask is vulnerable. The mask is what? Vulnerable. Like when you are into that uh, outfit, you are vulnerable, and you have to be protected. protected. You have people who protect oh, you. Oh, vulnerable. Where yeah, vulnerable. vulnerable? Yeah. So uh, it is a, a symbol, and just like. Uh, you have symbols in your nations, you know, people respect it, it can be an object or whatever, but uh, the strongest symbol you have in Afghan society is the, the mask, which is in the core of the, what they call initiation societies. So whenever you see, you only see that mask at the time of initiation, you don't see it no other time? No, you can see, you can see the mask can be out there dancing for entertainment too. Funerals? Yeah, funerals, baptism. Uh, they can have a festival for after the harvest and things like that. The mask is over there dancing. He's an entertainer too. And a good dancer too. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you should check it online. You can, you can see it easily. Okay. All this is going to be in your upcoming book. Yeah, I will write the name for you. So, to me, of course black people were enslaved in Louisiana along with Native Americans, maybe not many Native Americans, but Native Americans were enslaved here too. And black people always run away and go, many go to Indian Native American villages. And uh, there is, I think, some kind of cultural unity also between the Native Americans and the Africans. Mm -hmm. Like the same respect for nature, mother nature. Uh, spirituality it is all over there so but we cannot just explain the tradition of the Madhugra Indians 
from what we have locally. These people came from Africa. We have to look at their backgrounds to help explain this tradition. And it, it has always been a very serious thing. I think in the past people run away from Madhugra Indians. But you know now it is different. Things are different. But in the old days, when you hear about the Madhugra Indians in the, in the neighborhood, it is not, was not always uh, a runaway for your life, to my own interpretation, but it is also the fear, the respect you have for the mask. You, know, you don't fool with the mask. And if you look uh, until today in Senegal, when you look at uh, the mask, when he comes out, he, people still run away. <laughs> people, people, still, uh, people still run away. And the mask is, mess, is also, the mask comes to its highest power when the society is endangered. And especially during the slave trade times, scary times, that also added something to the role of the mask. Like I told you, the mask is in the, uh, let's say, in the, like the initiation to military and things like that, you know, warfare. That's also done within, uh, you know, in the entourage of the, of the mask. The mask also has the responsibility to protect the society. The mask. The mask, yeah. That's why whenever they have strangers who come in the, in the territory, and you see it in travel accounts, like Francis Moore was in the Gambia in 1732, at night the mask came to visit him. What the hell are you doing here? Who are you? Things like that. And every time they have a stranger come into the country, the must come to visit, to visit you and uh, to make sure you are not a danger for, for, the, for, for, for the society. You know? mm -hmm. I have a report about uh, uh, it was Major Gray and another officer, they visited Africa in 1818 and they were visited by the mask. And, uh, some things were going on. I think they, they had some affair with some women. And the mask came out at night. In the evening, they sent uh, emissaries to tell to the people, all the young men, the young women and girls, to be out at night in the public place. And at night, the mask came in and told the ladies, you better behave. Don't mess with the strangers. And he showed the, the, the white man. And he said, we learned something about some affair between some of you and these honkies. <laughs> then he called them. <laughs> For the first time, we forgive you. But uh, know that we are watching you. And if this happen again, you'll see. So like I told you, the mask can go all the way to get people eaten by the night. They make the night eat you. You, you just disappear. They may come at night, in the middle of the night, kidnap someone who did something really bad and take you into the forested area, execute you and make sure to bury you somewhere or you know, get rid of the body without nobody 
That's what they call being eaten by the night. Yeah. So you y'all had no policemen, so you had to protect your own community. You have to protect your community. And I'm saying that I cannot uh, understand that the people, the Bamana people, Monday people come in Louisiana in a context of slavery and permanent threat and forget about what they had before to protect themselves. Running away, I think when people run away en masse, they are not just over there, just uh, dealing, thinking about something to eat. But also, I think normally in the wilderness, in the swamp, when these men get together over there, they speak the same language or mutually intelligible languages, they would do something to recreate the tradition. Of course, that's something that was not documented. It is really hard to document, you know. It is secret. It is total secrecy, you know. They caught you doing the rituals in the, in the woods, you're dead, you know. So, the way I did the comparison is to see how Monday people were deported from Mali. So you said the Mandingo people? Mandingo. Or Monday is a more inclusive name. Okay. Mando. For Mandingo, Bamana, Senufo, Bozo, Somono, Soninki, uh, they were deported, but not all of them, I mean, the enslaved, but not all of them, they became captives of war, prisoners, but not all of them were sent through the Middle Passage to Louisiana, for example. Many stayed in the city of Saint Louis, which was the that where they had the headquarters of the French company of the West Indies, a colonial town where French colonization started in West Africa. So they had a very strong Monday population over there. The majority of the people over there were Monday, mostly Bamana. And they had a village on Gore Island. You visited Gore Island. They had a, a Bamana village over there on Gore Island. In Saint Louis too, they had a village on the island of Saint Louis. When at the left side of the island was occupied by the Europeans and the mulattoes and the Christians, the other side was mostly occupied by enslaved people, mostly Bamana, and they had a Bamana village. And later they settled out of the island of Saint Louis on the, on the continent. They had a huge area that was allocated to them after slavery. And that's when uh, this secret society was documented for the first time. So they reproduced that tradition over there called Koma. And I'm among a generation who last experienced that uh, secret society in the 1970s. I was a teenager growing, uh, going through middle and high school in Saint Louis. They come at, at, out at night. But when they say tonight, the Koma is coming out patrolling the street at, late at night, beating the drum, nobody goes outside. <laughs> or it is a curfew. You just cannot go outside. Too dangerous. It is really scary. And when they come in your neighborhood, you hear them, all the lights have to be off. You turn all of the lights. And uh, 
that's that's the, 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 the way it was and it lasted until the late 1970s and then with the domination of Islam and also the develop, I mean the society be moving to uh, verify into modernity the police you know the army and all of that that's what I call the new secret society yeah, in fact, now we have uh, uh, conflicts between the mass society and the army. In Kazaman, in the south of Senegal, one time the mask was out, everybody had to pay respect for it. But uh, Unfortunately, they caught someone who was a soldier and they beat him. They didn't kill him. But when he went uh, back to the military camp, <laughs> saying that the mass did that in, by solidarity, those people also came out and went to, to look for the mask. Yeah. Just to let them know, now it is, it is our time. Your time, your time is gone. It is our time. They beat the mask and took the all so, the, the, so the outfit, yeah. When in, in they call them this the sharif, like the sheriff. Is it do sheriff in town? In the Muslim they call us sharif. Sharif has a Muslim name, yeah. Uh, and it was a big problem. And so the the, the, the villages to whom the mask belonged came out and went and stoned the military camp it was a big mess and uh, the elders had to have to come out the civil authorities the marabou would come out to talk between the uh, you know the two camps you know because between the soldiers and the mosque and that's how it was because when the elders come out mm -hmm. it's for it's serious mm -hmm. it's serious so it's all about young men young soldiers in the military camp and also the mask coming out of the sacred forest. So that's the kind of conflict you have. But also, at the same time, the government used the mask for law and order. You cannot send the police everywhere in the country, especially in some remote areas where they still have the mask. Like uh, last year where with COVID, they needed some kind of authority. They could not send the police, police officials everywhere. And the villagers used the mask to maintain law and order and curfew. Hmm. And that was something that uh, really welcomed by the authorities and they went to say thanks to the elders for allowing the mask to come out and maintain authority. So the mask got that much power. Yeah, and the days were, uh, you know, you have hierarchy in, in, in the masking. You have different, in one village or one society, you can have several masks. But depending, just like in uh, the Mason or the Mason, you have degrees. Mm -hmm. And the highest degree, the, 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 the most powerful mask is called Farmondi. Say that word again. Farmondi. Farmondi doesn't get out in many years. He comes out when there is a real crisis in the society. Like last year when we had COVID and we needed to have these young people to stay home, to have people stay home, from when they came out. Mm. 
but many of these people were when the last time the farmer they was out they were not born yet <laughs> they don't know about it then they start coming out following them taking Take pictures <laughs> hey they will never do that again <laughs> <laughs> they will never do that again for 24 hours not men women nobody out only farm only and uh, the, the, the followers hmm. patrolling the street they had to cook inside the rooms if all the smoke and it is not like your house you can cook here you have ac you have uh, you know a fan and all of that for 24 hours you know and even you know the the shit hole i can call it the shit hole because the toilet is outside you know in our society you have that uh, shit hole over there latrine they call it latrine. Yeah, it is outside. So you could go out there? You can. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh -oh. hopefully you didn't have to go that bad. Oh, yeah. You had yeah. to hold it, huh? Ah, you have to hold it or you, you do it. Uh, you, you dig a hole in your room. And, <laughs> your room. And, and, and put it there. <laughs> <laughs> Serious times. So, yeah. Uh, Mm. And also in in writing that book, I have a lot of. Uh, it is very anecdotic, but every anecdotal, uh, yeah, anecdotal, and and uh, very anecdote has a lot of meaning. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, you, you learn a lot. You know, we use anecdotes to 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 let you learn something without uh, having to explain too much. Mm -hmm. Let's see. So. Like when I was explaining about our conception of God. There's a priest in the 17th century who came to my country and sit with the villager telling him about Jesus, the Son of God, telling him about Jew, I mean God, how powerful he is, you know, and all of that. And the guy told him, uh, we understand our God is like that too. He controls the thunder, the rain, and all of that. But in our conception, we don't need to worship that God. He's too powerful, you know. We're too small for, for Him. But uh, He said, We understand who your God are. But one thing we don't understand is that He has a son. That we cannot understand. <laughs> we cannot understand that that kind of God can have a son. Yeah. <laughs> now let's get back. I want to uh, mm, that's bring, a joke. Mm. bring Dr. Jackson in. I want y'all to talk about y'all relationship and how long y'all been knowing each other, working together, mm -hmm. uh, and how you end up in this country. We never even got back to that. So, uh, Doc, you know, won't you start talking you know, where we can hear how you all come to know each other? It's been a long time. I just time, saw that, that, that fly over there in your living room. Mm -hmm. It's about that conference that was held in 19, February 1999 in Biloxi, Mississippi. I was, invited, I was a student at that time. I mean, I was a teacher and a student at the time at the University of Dakar. And you, st you still are a teacher where? at the University of Dakar in Senegal. You still, you still teach at, at Dakar? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, Bubu Karbari, you know Bubu Karbari who was Senegambia in the Atlantic slave trade, was the one who was invited, number one scholar in Senegal about slavery. Mm 
and the slave trade, he called me and said, Ibrahim, you see, I have an invitation here for this conference in Biloxi, Mississippi. I cannot go, but I want you to go. I said, wow, that's scary, you know. I'm just a student, I cannot. <laughs> he said, just go. And I went, that's when uh, I met uh, 1999. I had met Gwen already. She was there too. You know, Cecil Vidal and all those people. But it, I met you before because you the one that invited me to that conference. I don't remember. I just remember us all together at that conference in Biloxi. Mm -hmm. But I had met you before then because you're the reason why we were at that conference. Because mm -hmm. it was a conference of historians. Yeah. And you invited uh, Maybe I met you through either Kathy Hambrick or Joyce Jackson. Joyce King? I think it was Joyce King. Yeah, Joyce King was associate provost at uh, UNO. At UNO, yeah. Maybe, and she was the first one who, who took me to, uh, to, to, to Texcoco mm -hmm. in 1996 in the spring. So, so as a young man, you had to go and do a presentation that you were scared. As a graduate student. Graduate student. That's, that's and how, how did it go for you? But I wasn't really scared. Uh, when I say young man, I wasn't that young because <laughs> I was teaching already a teacher. You're late for and But uh, I was working on my PhD and he decided to send me to the United States. Attend the conference. I said, ooh, that's <laughs> quite a challenge. You sure you want me to go there? He said, just go. And I went. Mm. And it went very well. Yeah, it did. Uh, the presentation. Well, it went very well, and uh, some like it, some didn't like it. Now, y'all have worked on other projects over the years, the two of you. Yeah, I brought him to LSU a couple of times, maybe yeah. two or three times, mm -hmm. and worked together on some conferences. I would bring him in as a guest speaker. Yeah. And um, he would come here when he was doing his research at the archives. Mm -hmm. Uh, and stay with us. You should bring um, me back sometime in uh, November too, if a big uh, <laughs> honorarium. Wait, but she's the chair now. She can get your job at LSU. Well, right? I, I, okay, well, yeah, I miss LSU. Get me back over there. Oh yeah, we can certainly get. So you say you like you like to teach at LSU? I would love to teach uh, at LSU or Lafayette. I mm -hmm. would love to teach uh, further west. You know, get mm -hmm. closer to Southwest Louisiana. Why, 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 any particular reason why? If they say Senegal had a very strong presence in Louisiana, the strong presence was in southwest Louisiana. Yeah, I'm telling you, and uh, mm. I feel something there that I want to be closer to. Somewhere between Brobridge, St. Martinville, Cecilia, Eunice, New Iberia, all the way north to the prairie country to New Roads, Point Coupe. That's something I want to look at. Mm. Mm. Yeah, we, I think because of the... And especially everything along the Bayutesh. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The folklore and the culture in those areas. Mm. Well, I mean, we connected because of, you know, history, culture, folklore, mm. you know, music. Mm. Uh, and we just have an interest in so many uh, com you know, a lot of commonalities in our uh, research. Now, you so. you done, you done made quite a few trips to Senegal. 
Yeah, at least. Yeah, gosh. many, many. Hmm? Did, did, I lost count of about, I don't know, 10 or 11. <coughs> Were you there when she showed up? Yeah, at least yeah. three or four times. Yeah, he spoke to my, well, I mm. did some study abroads there several times, and he would always uh, come and lecture to my classes mm -hmm. and sometimes go around with us as we were going to different parts mm -hmm. and having field trips in different areas of, um, yeah. of Senegal and um, helping us get through it, helping mm -hmm. to manage students, LSU mm -hmm. students. Did y'all ever work the conference together? Didn't you yeah, we we um, did a con well, we've done several conferences together. Even mm -hmm. meet up at the African Studies Conference together. Mm -hmm. We meeting up in the airport. Oh, I didn't know you were coming. I didn't know you were coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was in Nashville. One was in Indianapolis. Indianapolis, not Nashville. Indianapolis. Yeah. That's when I first heard you do the presentation where you talked about the African influences on the Mardi Gras Indians. Mm -hmm. Okay, that was the yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. and then we've done one at in Saint Louis, Saint Louis, uh, Senegal. northern part of uh, Senegal, not too far from his home. Yeah, and, now, um, now you got there's a place in Senegal called Saint Louis. Yeah, yeah. Saint like, Louis, like Saint Louis, Missouri. Yes. Yeah, and this Saint Louis, Missouri is old, I mean Saint Louis, Senegal is older than Saint Louis, Missouri. Yeah, it has a big New university Orleans there. Is, New Orleans is the daughter of Saint Louis, Senegal. That's what the conference was all about, mm -hmm. the connections between New Orleans and St. Louis, Senegal. Mm. Man, we worked together on that. He was basically the organizer of that conference, along with some professors from Tulane. Mm -hmm. um, and um, um, that was a, that was a good conference. It went very well, and it involved music. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was able to bring Larry Garner, a blues yeah, musician like, oh, yeah, from Baton Rouge. Larry Garner from Baton Rouge. To Indiana? To, to, no, to no, um, Senegal. To Senegal. Oh, St. Louis. Okay. And, uh, and he performed I with, a, what's the name of the blues guy? In, uh, uh, Via McFay. Yeah, they, the two performed together. Mm -hmm. And also I suggested them to, not only to do modern, modern music, uh, I said to, to pick uh, the people who play really early traditional music, mm -hmm. the traditional Ngoni banjo. Yeah. So there were five brothers playing the Ngoni. Mm -hmm. And finally, when we decided to take a band to New Orleans, we did not pick the modern band blues singer, but we took that traditional uh, group and they did well mm -hmm. in New Orleans. They perform at universities, they perform for the conference, they perform at the Whitney Plantation. Mm -hmm. They also perform every single day of Jazz Fest. Yeah. Except one Thursday, the, the second weekend, it was too wet. But every single day, like six days, three the first weekend and three the next. Mm -hmm. And every time that the tent, they were under a tent in the middle of the fairgrounds, it was always full. It's full. And people came it every day. Well where are the where are the Africans? <laughs> <laughs> and they're playing all these traditional instruments mm -hmm. now. Not, and then I think some of the guys uh jammed with them. Mm -hmm. Some of the other New Orleans musicians. Yeah, yeah even uh, Dr. Michael White was there. Yeah. Dr. Michael White Clarinet came with his clarinet. Mm -hmm. We have all the drummers who came also to 
to perform with them. Mm-hmm. That's good. And they will never forget that. Yeah. So those those guys enjoyed it. Enjoyed mm-hmm. their time here. Yeah, from just your village, directly to New Orleans. Oh, from mm-hmm. the village, okay. Mm-hmm. And banjo, you know, growing up, one time I heard banjo was in country music, and we it was something that we was not something we was quite used to. No, banjo went Early through a lot on. of transformation. You have the traditional banjo made with natural materials from the mother nature. But banjo went through a lot of uh, transformation using the materials became different. And also it has some kind of Celtic uh, influences with bluegrass, you know, from the east. And... Uh, also with African Americans, it was like an mm. instrument of minstrelsy. Mm-hmm. So a lot of us didn't want to play it because it mm-hmm. was sort of a vestige of that era. And also the, the, the banjo is uh, it's two high notes, you know. Mm-hmm. And the tempo of the African American singers usually, which is lower, it doesn't really match with the banjo. Yeah, not with the voice. Mm-hmm. So that's why the guitar. Mm-hmm. And uh, the harmonica, the harp, I think took became, over. Then <laughs> they, they took over. Yeah. So, so in uh, in Africa, a lot of people play the harmonica. They don't play. Some people do, but that's something that came from here. We we have our own kind of flutes, and especially the full bay flute, just like the harmonica. They speak in it. Things like that. No, 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 no. Just like uh, you know, the, when you see someone like uh, Sonny Boy Williamson playing the harmonica, the, the the harp or the harmonica, it's uh, just like uh, playing like uh, the Fulani flute. Mm, a slim harper. Mm, or a slim harper, yeah. Uh, yeah. Port Allen. Mm. Famous for the Swamp Blues in this area. Mm, I like Slim Harpo. Yeah, he's good. You familiar with Slim Harpo? I used to have a blue show every yeah. uh, Sunday morning, late in the morning. Where? In Senegal. Hold in on, fact, she, I invited yes. her one time to my blue you show. You had a blue show in yeah, Senegal. I was on the air every week. Yes. <laughs> That's where I met my wife. And... Uh, I was doing down-home blues every day. <laughs> 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 nah, you don't know nothing about no down-home blues. blues in no synagogue. And there was a lady there, Sohna, <laughs> Sohna Sil, she was the head of the desk information. So we fell in love and they keep, you know, saying that uh, you really didn't come here for your show. <laughs> All the time you were doing your show, you were peeping on the lady. <laughs> I said, whatever. <laughs> so, mm. I, I remember when I first... That's where I met his wife, the radio. That's why my good friend Joe Caldwell, he passed away. He was a professor of history at UNO, and I told him the blues saved my life. <laughs> he, just, he just burnt out like, he said, what? I said, yes, the blues saved my life. He said, blues is killing us here. <laughs> and you said the blue save your life, and I had to explain to him. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I you met your wife. <laughs> Before my wife, the first time I met uh, someone who really uh, uh, 
he was a Delta blues singer back in 1989. My first trip to the United States was a trip organized by the State Department, the International Visitor Program. In the program, we had Mississippi, Oxford, Ole Miss. So over there, they have the Center for the Study of Southern Culture. And we were invited by Bill Ferris, and he brought us uh, a Delta Blue singer, one of the old Delta Blue singers, James and Thomas. You know, when that yeah. man started playing, I said, this came from my country. <laughs> you, can, you can tell. Yeah, I can tell. And, uh, and uh, the next Sunday, still in Oxford, uh, I went with the guide to attend, uh, I mean, I was the only one who accepted to go to that black church, the Second Baptist Church. The pastor at that time was Lero Wadlington. And it was their homecoming day. The church was packed, you know, with those oldest people, you know, singing those, uh, uh, the gospel and people fainting, you know. Shouting. <laughs> oh, it was uh, so powerful and, and I did recognize it, you know, just like our brother who's in Senegal when they start singing, you know. Oof, it, it is a lot of power in the, in the atmosphere and that's something also that uh, the spark came from there. And I, for the next two years, few years, I was into depression. I was, I said to my man, I have to do a dissertation, get a PhD. And the title, the topic should be The Roots of the Blues Culture. And uh, how to get back to the United States. I was a high school teacher at that time. Yeah, you were teaching geography, weren't you? Yeah, history yes. and geography. History <laughs> and geography. And, uh, Finally, I said the best way to do things, you know, is to go and get uh, some more education. So I went back to the university, and I picked. Uh, I went to see an advisor, and I told him that I want to study the roots, African roots of the blues culture. He said, "Ooh, can I do that? How can you get to the university? How can you get a scholarship?" And I dropped it, he gave me another topic about Futatoro, my country, length of conflict in Futatoro. And a few months later, he called me and said, you have to drop that topic. I said, why? He said, in fact, I gave that topic to someone else. I thought he was not doing anything about it, but he's back. So you have to pick another topic. Mm. And I told him, look, I have my own topic. Would you please allow me to do it and trust me, I will find my way. He said, okay, go bless, uh, go ahead, uh, God bless you. Umar Khan was his name. And I went back uh, teaching. Yeah, I went, I went back teaching full time. And also learning English at the American Center. And while I was there, I heard about uh, the Fulbright program. And I was encouraged to apply, and I, and I applied. And they, and I got it. I got the Fulbright uh, grant. Fulbright. Fulbright, yeah. It is a very important, uh, I mean, program. You get scholarship for researchers. For other countries. Research. Mm -hmm. International. International program, yeah. 
So I did not make any choice where I would land in the United States. But I know I, will, I, will, I, will needed, I wanted to go somewhere on the Mississippi River. And they took me back where Oxford, Mississippi, the same place. So I spent the two semesters, 1995, fall 1995 and the spring of 1996. And then I moved to New Orleans uh, because uh, the archives I needed were there. The what was there? Archives. Archives. And two years later, in 1990, I got another program before the Ford Foundation. I came back to the United States to do more research. And the next year, 1999, that's when I graduated. I graduated a few months uh, in July 1999. I was in Biloxi in, in February 1999. So when I went back home, I finished writing my dissertation in, in July 1999. I defended my dissertation with the highest honors. And they, it was deemed the best dissertation for the last decade. Mm -hmm. And that's where things started, you know. So that's the beginning of the history, the story. To be continued, I want to go home. <laughs> well, you, well, you back to New Orleans? Yes, I'm back to New Orleans now. Just going to have him captured all day. <laughs> I want to go home. <laughs> well, mm. uh, today is Sunday. Yes. Until uh, uh, mm. the next few hours. <laughs> yeah, the boy has to follow classes tomorrow virtually. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, well, you have to be at work. <laughs> uh -huh. yeah, I, I'm going to the Whitney Plantation tomorrow, too. So, mm -hmm. so Sheriff, how you end up at Whitney Plantation? Give us a little history. The next year, 2000, I was uh, leading a group. It was the mayor of uh, Gore Island and a delegation of 11 people, 10 people. Him, that's 11, and me, 12 people. And uh, he was invited to the inauguration of the African American Museum in St. Martinville. I was a member of the curatorial board of the museum too, in St. Martinville. Yeah, what's the young lady name again? Daniel Fontenet. Yeah, Daniel Fontenet. You knew you knew Espinola. Hmm. Espinola, you remember her? Espinola? No. No. Okay. But anyway, uh, after the inauguration, we were traveling back to Senegal. We stayed two nights in New Orleans. That's when we met John Cummings. And my name was highly recommended to him by uh, Gwanli Midler Hall. In fact, he invited us to stay in his hotel two nights. And then... Uh, Who was he? John Cummings. Okay. He was the owner of Winnie Plantation. He had just bought the plantation and was consulting around to find people who can help him build that uh, museum. So that's when I started to work with him. I would come every year. From 2000, 2012, every summer and fall, and do research, you know, to find materials and you know, information to put on the ground to build the museum. So, because a museum is not only buildings, historic buildings, it has to have some contents. So that was my role to do the research, and that's how this came, book came from it too. So the, the book, which was name of the book? Book Kife Gombo. Okay. 
And so you work with Gwendolyn Midland Hall, developing that? Yeah, I did work with Gwendolyn Midland Hall too, for the Louisiana Slave Database. And uh, in 2012, he asked me to move to New Orleans with my family. But I did not come until the end of the year, <coughs> December 2012. And uh, in July 2013, I went to get the family to bring them to New Orleans. That's how it started. So I've been here a permanent resident since 2013. And I'm looking forward to getting uh, the citizenship for me and my family. Oh, uh, so at this present time, you don't have full... No, I don't have the citizenship yet. I, I have the green card that allows me to travel freely and to stay here just like a citizen, but not quite a one yet. That will happen maybe around 2023. So I will be free at that time. I will be more free man, you know, free person at that time. So, so but because yeah. of the green card has also a lot of restrictions. So uh, John Cummins couldn't expedite that process? No, you cannot. But uh, it is a process that lasts five years. If you are married to uh, an American, it's three years. But if you're not married to an American, it's five years. And there's nothing you can do about it. Okay. They put you in a tunnel for five years. <laughs> yeah. Right. But once you emerge from that tunnel, you did not commit any kind of crime. You apply for citizenship, so you right, get it. So yeah. Right now, you still are considered an illegal alien. No, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm a legal alien. Yes, <laughs> alien. I'm a legal alien. <laughs> so you got to be careful there. But hold on. So we want to thank, yeah, uh, Dr. Jackson for participating in this segment uh, today, mm -hmm. and thank you, Doc. And we once again congratulations on your chairship at LSU. Thank you. Uh, the new mm -hmm. Madam Chair in, her, in the Geography, Anthropology mm -hmm. Department. Department of Geog Geography and Anthropology. And, all right. And we get, once again, we thank our special guest mm -hmm. uh, for the third time visiting us. And we hope to see, hear much more from him, uh, Dr. Abraham Sett, uh, the author of a new of a book, Buki Fe Gumbo. Fe Gumbo. Buki Fe Gumbo. And what's the name the, of the new one? What's the name of the new book going to be? Masters of the Savannah, the West African Roots of Louisiana Afro-Creole Culture. Well, that's, a, that's a lot to, <laughs> to say, but we look, we're going to look forward for that book, and we look forward mm -hmm. for you to visit with us once again. And once again, welcome to Count Time, and uh, we were so elated to have you all and have two special guests today, two mm. scholars. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Y'all always remember this here. Man can shackle the hand, man can shackle the feet, but only you can shackle the mind. The mind is always free to travel wherever you dare to take it. And I'd like to thank you for tuning in once again to Count Time Podcast. I'm Brother L. Diazobra. Thank you once again. Remember, it's 4 p.m. Stand up. It's count time. Time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted.